What's up, everyone? This is episode number 17 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And you know what? As an NBA fan, I am still on cloud nine. Because this last week has been another good week for NBA content. Draft picks have been settling in. Summer league rosters are taking shape. Awards were handed out on Monday night. And then free agency officially begins on Sunday night. So there's a lot of chatter about that already. You guys actually have been commenting quite a bit on that on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. Please keep doing that. There's not really a lot of new stuff that I want to cover right now, which is actually a good thing because I've been wanting to do a feature on a pretty monumental card in our hobby for a while now, and I feel like now's a great time. So today I'm going to talk about LeBron James 2003-2004 Upper Deck Exquisite RPA number to 99. Um, This is actually part one of a two-part series, but today I'm going to touch on the following aspects. The background of the set as a whole, why LeBron James is so important, why this card is so sought after, the evolution of the card and the perception of the card over the years, acquiring said card, and then pricing, the potential for manipulation, and known altered copies. So enough with the intro though, let's just jump right in. Let's look at the background of the set. While there were what some would consider to be high-end cards before Exquisite, the number of exclusively high-end products was slim to none. At this time, remember, we're talking all the way back in 2003. So when word originally got out that Upper Deck was going to release a product that was $500 a box, you can imagine that there was some resistance. And then when they informed those same consumers that these boxes would only contain five cards, well, the backlash only intensified. One of the many things that made this set intriguing, though, was that every single card in the set was numbered, even the so-called base cards. So there are 42 different veteran base cards, and they're all numbered to 225. The rookie base cards, however, in this set featured a patch and an autograph. And all of these were limited to 225 copies, with the exception of Udonis Haslam, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Carmelo Anthony, Darko Milicic, and LeBron James. So the base cards of those six players were numbered to 99 instead. So that's why you might see there are some other rookies in this set that have a lot more cards than LeBron. In this case, he only has the 99, if we're talking just the base version. So even though this was considered the first real high-end basketball product, this is vastly different than a lot of the high-end products today. You'll recall from my National Treasures episode that the veteran checklist was weak. That was one of my complaints. Well, that wasn't the case with Exquisite. And then I also want to remind you that Luca had more cards than any other player in National Treasures, and they're pretty much using the rookies alone to sell the product. Well, not so with Exquisite. The highest draft picks, with the exception of Udonis Haslam, who actually wasn't drafted at all, the highest draft picks also had the most difficult base cards to obtain, so that was a big difference between now and then. Um, so why is Exquisite so important? Why is it so sought after? Why is the 2003-2004 release so valuable? If I had to sum it up, my short answer is, is simply content, scarcity, and timing. So from a content perspective, you had veteran and legend jumbo patches and autos, you had an exciting rookie class, and there was a lot of hype surrounding LeBron James. 
As far as scarcity, I've really already touched on that, but everything was limited. Then when you look at timing, people were very excited about Yao the previous year. He was a rookie in 2002, but the hype surrounding LeBron James was unreal. And this was before social media was anything close to the juggernaut it is today. In fact, it was only in its infant stages then, and and it was a non-factor here. So at that time, things like ESPN and the Sports Illustrated cover were a big deal. And ESPN first televised one of his high school games in 2002 when he was just 17. And in the intro, they showed clips of Wilt Chamberlain, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Kobe. So that was um, quite the reputation to live up to. And you guys are right now, you're familiar with all the Zion hype. I feel like Zion is without a doubt the most hyped player since LeBron James. And I'm sure this is debatable, but my memory of the LeBron James hype is that it was greater than the Zion hype. And that was without Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. In fact, that was kind of one of the things that helped pull me back into collecting. So timing was everything. And if you look at the bigger name rookies of the early 2000s, this set wouldn't have been as iconic if it were anchored by somebody like Kenyon Martin or Yao Ming or Amari Stoudemire. But it wasn't. It was anchored by LeBron James, the premier card out of the premier set of the beginning of the high-end boom. So it's a very important card. Um, So then that was kind of the origins of this thing. If we look at the evolution of this card and, and its perception over the years, as you're listening to everything that I'm saying today, keep in mind that there are other variations of this LeBron card, but I'm going to focus um, pretty much exclusively on what's considered to be the base version, which is numbered to 99. So if we're trying to price this thing throughout history, there's a lot more chatter than there is verifiable data. And when Exquisite first came out, there are varying reports. You might have been able to get one of these LeBron cards for between $750 and $1,000 if you were lucky, and and I've seen that debated. But by the end of his rookie season, these were selling in the $2,000 range, and that is agreed on. This number kept climbing to around eight to 12,000 over the years, and after about 10 years on the market, I've seen a number of seemingly reliable sources put it in the $20,000 range. Now, keep in mind, that was around 2014. The big question I see a lot, and one that I figure some people are hoping I'll answer in this episode is, what is this card worth today? Well, I will say that I think it's definitely higher than $20,000. I think you'd have plenty of people lined up to buy that, but I'm not going to put an actual number on it. And my reasons for doing so will become much clearer when I get to the segment on market manipulation. So if that's what you are here for, I'm sorry, I'm, but I'm not going to try and put a number on this card. However, even without a concrete figure, I think we can comfortably and safely say that the value of this card has risen, and the reasons for LeBron specifically are very similar to the reasons why the set as a whole has achieved a sort of cult following, and that's because of the the caliber of player that he is, the timing of the card, the skepticism around the set, the rookie class, and then the situation will never be replicated. And all of the other factors I touched on when I talked about the set, but I think it's worth noting that the caliber of player is is a big deal here, obviously. In 2003, we quickly saw that LeBron was otherworldly for an 18-year-old. But remember that montage before his high school game on ESPN compared him to the greats. We're talking Wilt, we're talking Kobe, 
We're talking magic, we're talking bird, right? So he had to live up to that hype. Well, here we are many years later, and he did. But even if we look at his career and his, you know, let's go back and after his rookie season, after his second year, and his third year in the league, he led the league in scoring with over 31 points per game. That same season, he took the Cavs to the playoffs. In his very first playoff game, he notched a triple-double. And then in that same series, he made two game winners, and he averaged almost 31 points per game. And I'm not going to cover everything that's happened in LeBron James's career here, but as we go forward, his play improved. He started racking up awards. Um, he won two MVPs in a row in 2009 and 2010. And at the same time, he was building his brand and his image. And then there was the decision. And for those of you, maybe if you weren't involved in the hobby or you weren't watching basketball at this time, um, there was all of this hype surrounding what is LeBron James going to do in free agency? Is he going to stay? Is he going to leave? So they scheduled this television special and it was called The Decision and it was a really big deal. And it was in that television show or on that television show that he announced that he was signing with the Heat. And that's when everyone started burning their Cavs jerseys. And not only that, but the Heat formed their big three and they became villains. And I think it's interesting, though, going back to that big three, that that big three included three of the six exquisite base RPAs that were limited to 99 copies. So it's interesting how that big three, you know, will forever be tied to that set as well. Um, now, eventually, the, the first season they lost in the final to the Mavs. They recovered. They won two titles in a row. LeBron won two MVPs. Um, and then eventually Kawhi and the Spurs beat them and ended the LeBron Heat era. Um, LeBron goes back to Cleveland, then delivers them a title after being down 3-1 to one in the Mighty Warriors. And understandably, he elevates his stock in the process. So... Here we are today, no matter what happens now in L.A., and and yes, we know that year one was rough, but we knew it would be. Even if everything goes downhill from here, what the man has accomplished in his career is nothing short of incredible. And as LeBron's stock and his brand and his image have solidified over the years, we've seen the movement of his card prices kind of run parallel to his career. And I don't know at what point he, he really achieved this status or this card really achieved this status But I've seen a number of collectors describe this card as the 52 mantle of basketball. And I agree. And I'm not here to start a debate about LeBron James and Michael Jordan. I think Michael Jordan's 86 Fleer rookie is very important to the hobby. But the truth of the matter is it's not numbered to 99 copies. You can go to any real big card show and you'll find multiple sellers who probably have multiple copies of that Jordan rookie. Not so with the LeBron. So that kind of adds to this allure and this mystique of the card is that there is rarity to it. Um, So what about acquiring said card? If someone really wants one of these cards and there's only 99 of them, how do they go about acquiring it? And I've seen a number of places and, and people talking about how to collect LeBron James cards, but how to acquire a card like this is never really definitively outlined. And part of the reason for that is because first off, finding and then acquiring one of these can be challenging. And that's where a guy, a collector now, named Bill Lee comes into play. 
And you can find a summary of his story on a website called Cardboard Connection. And they have given me permission to um, summarize parts of that on this podcast here. But basically, Bill Lee is a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. And he had been in that whole business for over 20 years. And then finally, in the summer of 2014, he decided that he wanted to acquire one of these LeBron cards as an investment. Well, to make a long story short, he looked on card forums, he looked on eBay, but instead of providing him with actual opportunities to buy the card, he just ended up with several different leads instead. Or maybe he would start to enter a sale and the sellers wouldn't actually have the card. Instead, they would try and sell it for a high price and acquire from someone else and try and act like a middleman. Well, then there were other times where the issue was payment. You know, If he wanted to pay for this in person, he didn't want to carry that much cash or he didn't feel comfortable wiring that amount of money either because you know you're never sure if the seller is going to ship and the article goes on to note that lee also found the market to be very clubby it said that sellers and buyers are reluctant to deal with those who are not known in collecting circles eventually bill connected with an ebay seller that more or less became his personal card broker Uh, And the article continues on to say, the main thing we heard when trying to find the card was the seller doesn't want to sell. So there was an art to convince these people to sell. We also chased a lot of false leads and people trying to make a fast buck by flipping cards they didn't have. Like any industry, I learned there are a few hucksters in the business. Um, So eventually, even though he was looking for the base card number to 99, an opportunity came up to get the jersey numbered variation first. And after eight weeks of offers and counter offers, he acquired this card in January of 2015. The price was $90,000 plus an SP authentic Kevin Durant rookie auto number to 10, which at the time he estimated to be worth about $5,000. So to him, the overall cost was $95,000. And even in 2015, I remember there were a number of people that posted and gave their opinion. They thought that he overpaid for this, but you know what? It's his money. Well, shortly after, in April of 2015, he acquired the card he originally set out to find, which was the base version numbered to 99, slabbed as a BGS 9.5. And that's the end of this article. It doesn't really tell you much about the acquisition of the card number to 99. It doesn't tell you step by step what you can do. It was more or less to show you what a complicated web this really is. And the process will probably look a little different for anyone that pursues it. Because here you had a guy, you know, realistically money didn't seem to be an issue, but he still had to pay his dues in so many other ways. And that's by making connections in the hobby by establishing trust on his end, developing trust with the other side, and so on and so on. The next section I want to look at then is pricing, the potential for manipulation, and then follies and known altered copies. So a a good question to ask would be, how can somebody manipulate the market on these? Because let's face it, it's going to happen. Well, there are several ways to break this down. So you have actual physical changes that someone can make to a card. And then there are changes that someone can make, for lack of a better term, to the selling environment of that card. Now, you can also play the grading game. And I want to point out, before I really get into this, there's nothing wrong with cracking a card and resubmitting it. 
or submitting it to another company as long as you're not making any physical changes to the card. It is risky though. And in fact, there's one copy out there that we know as a BGS-9 and now it's graded a BGS-6. And we really don't know the history of what happened in between, but we can see from the subgrades that the corner grade went down considerably. So I suspect that they damaged the corner of the card, cracking it out of the slab. That's a pretty costly slip of the hand. Um, as far as the physical changes, though, we've seen this before. This is where people will try to trim the edges to try and bump the grade. Um, someone might do this if, if the centering is poor or if the edges are rough. Another option that we've seen, people try to swap the patch out because the nicer the patch, the more of a premium the card itself carries. And ideally, you want a three-color patch. Whenever I see one that's just, you know, plain white, I usually make a note of it because there's a good chance that this ends up swapped out at some point, and we have seen that. It's nothing new. We've seen it with LeBron. We've seen it with KD. I'm sure we'll see it again. Just for the record, though, and I'm sure there are other altered copies I'm not aware of, but I've seen visual evidence for these five. 21 out of 99 has major paper tears, and the auto is completely gone. I have no idea what happened to that one. Number 63 of 99 had a one-collar patch that was swapped out. Um, number 64 of 99 appears to be a botched trim job. 74 of 99 is trimmed, and then also 87 of 99 is trimmed. So that's five cards out of the 99 that we know of, um, looks like for sure, that have been altered. And as you can imagine, as we've seen over the last year especially, people get really upset when cards are found to be trimmed. And when I was researching some for this episode, I saw a post I really liked from a user named JMS Coggin. And I want to take a moment to read a little bit of that because I think it puts this whole thing into perspective. So in reference to altered cards, he says, Legally, the owner of a card can do whatever he wants to with his cards. Trim them, draw a mustache on them, or use them for kindling. The fact of the matter is that personal property is just that. Personal property. Want to buy a Bugatti and paint it pink? Have at it. Where things change is twofold. First, there's a big difference between legality and industry acceptability. And then he goes on to explain those two things. So he says, industry acceptability. Is it against the law to get an in-person auto on a one-of-one? One? Absolutely not. But does the majority of the hobby frown on the practice? Yes, they do. Is the hobby okay with trimming cards? No. Would I trim a card that was worth $100,000 even if I planned on taking it with me to the grave? No. Are there eccentric people in the hobby that would? Without a doubt. Then he goes on to define legality. And he says, as discussed above, there is nothing illegal about altering personal property, be it a sports card, Bugatti, or the Mona Lisa. Where the law is very clear is with the intent to defraud. If someone intentionally alters something and knowingly sells it while portraying it as something else, that is a crime. Um, and then this user references an instance where a trimmed LeBron exquisite was uncovered and he says, do we think it was going to or will happen? Yes. Anyone with any semblance of intelligence would believe so. So what he's alluding to there is the fact that uh, more likely than not, we think if somebody is altering this card, it's not for their personal satisfaction and just for the personal aesthetics of the card to them. 
um, there's likely some ulterior motive to that. Still, you need to make up your mind for yourself there. I'm not going to tell you what to think. Um, in addition to changing something on the card physically, I've also seen people try to control or establish the price that a certain card ends for. And the first way to do this is, or one way to do this, I should say, is by constantly bringing attention to the card. So as if this card wasn't already talked about enough as it is over the last 15 years, some people have made a conscious effort to create multiple threads, which a thread is basically a conversation on a message board. They've created multiple threads to talk about this card and also to get people to throw out a number for a perceived value. And I'm sure you could do this on Facebook or any other social media as well, but the method of choice seems to be message boards. So this game in general, predicting a price, for people that aren't actively looking for a copy, you know, maybe it's a fun exercise to try once. What do you think it's worth if we were just to have a conversation? It is a historic card after all. But when this happens again and again from the same person, it should be concerning. And I want to give you an example of a guy that did this on the blowout forums for multiple years. This guy had one thread in particular that he called the 03 Exquisite LeBron James RPA 99 price check. And for over two years, he would bump this thread up and ask for an update on value. What do you think it's worth now? Or he just won the title. What do you think it's worth? And at the same time, people were asking him if he owned one, and, and he said he didn't. And it almost became a joke that he kept asking about this price. Well, lo and behold, it looks like he finally got a, a copy of this card at the end of 2018. And at first glance, you might think, well, you know, maybe he's just he was just really interested in studying this card and finding a copy that suits him best. And by all means, that could be an option. But when you look at things in context and you discover that this guy also has a 10 plus year history of hyping Jordan cards and he was actually banned on another site for using a second account to set a false market, that kind of changes things. And you just have to be careful. Don't buy into the hype and try to use a little discretion when you're dealing with people in person, even if they seem like good guys and good gals. One final note about this person before I move on. Um, he was recently featured on another Cardboard podcast, and that episode had the title, How to Collect Michael Jordan and LeBron James Cards. Number one, the video didn't actually explain how to do that. And number two, I can assure you that a history of shilling and hyping Jordan and LeBron cards for over 10 years isn't the right approach either. This person shouldn't be given any type of platform. Another quick way that people try to control price, and there are many of them, so I'm just going to cover you know three or four of them today. I pulled this from an, a, um, an eBay listing from 2008 where the seller says, if this card does not reach a bid price close to the percentage of what its value is, we reserve the right to close and cancel the auction as per eBay guidelines. Which, by the way, I've never seen that listed as a legitimate reason in their guidelines. So they're basically just saying, we're just going to pull this if it doesn't get the price that we want. They're the one putting the card up for auction, where it could and should theoretically reach its true value. But at the same time, they're also adding a caveat that lets them pull the listing if it doesn't reach its value. But remember, it should reach it because it's up for auction. So that's kind of strange. People will just 
decide not to go through with the sale if they feel like it doesn't reach the value they want. Um, Something else I've seen, we see a lot of people steal images of these cards just to get a quick loan on eBay. You know, they think that's a good idea if they need $30,000 or $40,000 or whatever. They'll, they'll take someone's picture on Instagram or blow out and then they'll put it for sale on eBay. Well, understandably, this upsets the real owner. And, and there have been times where this has happened and the real owner will then bid up the card knowing that it's not actually owned by that person in an attempt to protect their investment. That's kind of the phrase that's used there. Let me make one thing clear. I've seen some people, and even people I respect in this hobby, so this is not always a popular opinion, but I've seen them try to defend the act of protecting an investment. Well, at the end of the day, this is still a form of market manipulation. You might not call it that, but that's what it is. And people will say, well, you know, I have so much money invested in this card. But when you pay that money or when you buy that product, you're not buying in on the right to pump a card. So if you're going to play this game with high dollar cards and you really think the investment's a good one, then you have to trust the market and trust your instincts and let it play out. If you don't think the market is going to match your investment, then don't make it. And I know the thought process as well, you know, I don't want this low sale to be in on the sales history. But yet these same people get frustrated when people question a sale that seems to be on the high side. I think it's a known thing by this point that all public sales of this card should be met with a healthy dose of skepticism. So anyone that's going to jump through all of the hoops to buy this card is going to figure that out. So that low total, so to speak, is not going to change perceptions of the card. If anything, it's going to probably bring it more closer to reality. And if you overpaid for it, you overpaid for it. That's on you. Now, I will also say then that this is dangerous because this type of manipulation on a card at the very top, to some degree, can have a trickle-down effect on those that are associated with it. And you can almost guarantee that when a LeBron card from this set reaches a record sale, the weight probably rises a little bit in the process. Go on eBay and look at non-LeBron Topps Chrome Refractors from 2003. You're going to find sellers that will add on to the title something like LeBron Rookie Year. Now, Wade's a big name player, but you're going to see this movement even with the lower tier cards from the set. Um, I know a couple years ago, I I sold a Luke Walton Exquisite RPA from the same year. Um, It was numbered to 225. I sold it for $100. That wasn't on auction. That was the best offer. Someone actually offered me $100 for that. And I've seen several since then that have ended in that same range. It would be foolish to say that LeBron and LeBron cards don't have an impact on some of these other players. Luke Walton is not a $100 card. There are other players from that set that are not selling for $100. So when you mess with one, essentially you messed with them all. One last idea that I've seen regarding manipulation, or at least the last one I'm going to touch on today, is an idea that people have floated around a little bit. And it's been assumed that some people will carry out a transaction in person for a set amount, but then post the sale online on somewhere like eBay for a different amount. And let's just throw a number out there, maybe $250,000. The thinking is that both people could benefit. Um, The buyer already gets a perceived return on his or her investment, and the seller has helped type a card. That could possibly wind up in his or her hands again at a future date because Let's face it, if they have that card, they're already established, they already have those kind of connections, 
it keeps him in that circle. And speaking of circles, as I close today, I want to say, I think that this LeBron card is an incredible card. I don't want to take away anything from this card. I mentioned earlier that if I had to make one, I would place it on the Mount Rushmore of cards. If you weren't aware previously, though, hopefully now you understand that there are a lot of question marks and questionable activities and questionable characters that hover around this card like flies. And I'm not saying that every person that owns one of these is a bad person, but throughout the years we've seen a lot of the same questionable people emerge again and again, sometimes under different names, but it's the same people, and they keep coming back to this card. So if you're going to, in some way, try to associate yourself with this card, be it research, be it purchasing the card, whatever, I urge you to take all these things into consideration and to just be cautious. I think this gives us a good stopping point to kind of pause and reflect on what I've talked about today before I move on to part two of this little series, which will cover the infamous LeBron thread of 2018. And now it's time for you to respond. I'm sure there'll be some interesting feedback on what I covered today. If you have something you'd like to add, hit me up on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.